Welcome to Walk the Line, the podcast for people working in off-site construction, hosted by Chris Ward from Trunk. Welcome back. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Ross Kilshaw from WSP. Ross talks to us about how we can use data to inform design decisions and enable automation in the design process. He also talks about customer choice and the challenges permutations bring to the design and manufacturing process. Enjoy the show. So thanks, Ross, for uh, for joining us today. Just start us off. Tell us a bit about yourself and, and your role at WSP. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I recently joined WSP from Urban Splash. So my role within WSP is associate within the digital innovation team. It's quite a new team within WSP, and we're kind of looking to specialize in DFMA and offsite manufacture. My specific role is design and data strategist. Right. Okay. Okay. And what's that practically look like day to day? Maybe, maybe what are you working on, um, or what are you, what are the topics you're talking about? Yeah. So, so I think my role is kind of is asking questions about how, how do we, use, how can we use data to inform design and business decisions? I mean, obviously, it's it's no secret that data is one of the most valuable commodities in the world now. But I think construction industry is probably one of the last one of the last industries to actually make full use of that data. I suppose the first question is how can you collect it? One of the big problems I find is the standardization of data when it's left to employees to kind of interpret how they should input data. You don't get that standardization, so it's a lot harder to collect and then analyze. So it's kind of trying to use trying to use tools and techniques to automate data input so then you can kind of get some real analysis out the back end of that. Mm, okay. When we say data, what's that look like? Is that data for, um, let's say, production, uh, uh, thermal performance? Yeah. So, so I mean, the the uh, I mean, uh, uh, starting from the basics, you, you've kind of if you're talking about procurement documents, you've got kind of I always think you've got three kind of types. You've got design drawings, specifications, and schedules. So it's understanding where does that data best fit. Well, if you're going to talk about performance requirements like the fire acoustic that tends to sit better in the specification so it's not kind of cluttering up the drawings the dimensions clearly sit better on the drawer on the drawings and then the quantities sit better on the schedule so that you can start using uh, kind of current softwares revit inventor start automating the schedule production so bill of materials bombs and i suppose that that it, it reduces the risk of human error as well as increasing efficiency within the design process I see. I see. So it's data about the the planning and up to the execution point, rather than sort of retrospective data around performance, let's say, or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's also to do with. I mean, it, it obviously ties in really well with DFMA because the if you start using kind of system kind of unique identifiers, you can start getting neater workflows from design through to procurement through to delivery and then start understanding where them systems have to go on site i mean it's, it's one thing i i previously did at urban splash was kind of if you start creating the unique identifiers earlier on in the process so from planning like that plot has a unique identifier therefore that module has a unique identifier you can start you, you've got that number that then you can associate whether that's wall panels doors to that module so that when the customer chooses that layout We've already kind of built the database that says DRS 101 goes into a G1 layout. So therefore, when the customer picks a G1 layout, it automates that kind of procurement process workflow of we know we need a DRS 101. And then the background of that is 
within the specification, that might be that DRS 101 might have a fire resistance of 30 minutes, let's say. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So linking up to that, to that uh, we talked earlier about the the scale of at one end of the scale there's a construction mindset, you know, for traditional construction, and then the other the other end there's a manufacturing mindset, and it's definitely right up on that manufacturing mindset approach. Yeah, there. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. And um, how did you end up in offsite construction? So I think, I mean, so. If- Coming out of university, I kind of I specialized in computational design. And through my master's, I I kind of got more into, I suppose, self-taught software engineering. So I'll be the first to admit I'm no expert. But I think the the thing that kind of excites me is understanding the basics of software engineering. You understand the potential of it. So when you start, and, and obviously because, I, because my background is architecture, I know what problems I'm trying to solve. So that's where it starts getting exciting. And I think so. And then from from there, I went into ACOM and was in the specification team, which sits in the architecture design department. And then it's, it's all about breaking a building down into separate systems, understanding how them systems come together, how them junction details go. And then realistically, when you think about a building as systems, that's basically what offsite manufacturer is, because you've got the wall panels, you've got the roof, you've got the floor cassette so from there i kind of i started getting more and more interested into how off-site manufacture can be optimized for the site i suppose for the for the employees requirements so from there i joined urban splash as the business intelligence and improvement manager within the factory in alfreton and that was actually my first experience of a off-site manufacture and it was incredibly i suppose challenging and rewarding i think um we were a small design team so I, i kind of got into the nitty-gritty of of what happens within the factory obviously you're kind of you're walking into the factory every day you want you've got to analyze the problems you've got to work work out is it a is it kind of a sequencing issue is it a drawing issue is it a design issue and then walk back into the design room and then start actually solving them problems so i mean it's all about how do you i mean there was obviously a lot of learn lessons learned from urban splash which i think is it stood me in good stead moving moving on to WSP. So yeah, I think I mean that that's kind of it that's that got me excited about offsite and it kind of it showed that there is real potential to start talking about sustainability and start talking about kind of production rates and program efficiencies. Okay. Okay. And just reflecting a little bit there, tell me about some of the, the successes in the last twelve months then. I mean, I'm not sure how much success we had in the last 12 months, but I suppose the success for me was is the is now the ability to kind of critically analyze, I suppose, what maybe what went wrong and what and then taking them improvements kind of forward into my future. I think what one of the big things for me was it was always to do with permutations and and this idea about customer choice. I mean, I, I did quite a lot of research into customer choice and and this whole idea that I mean, if you look at Apple or Tesla, they've kind of, they've clearly put a lot of effort into the idea of what, what is the optimum choice for a customer to kind of reduce the anxiety and stress of that, of that kind of process of choosing a product. I mean, what, what, one, one thing I always start with presentations when I do talk about this is how long do you spend watching, choosing something to watch on TV at night? And it, it really hits home to a lot of people I talk to because I mean, even myself, I, I will sit there, spend about half an hour searching through Netflix, Prime, Sky, and in the end, I get so annoyed that it's taking me half an hour, I end up switching it off. 
And it's yes. that whole idea of it's causing, it's actually causing the customer anxiety yes. and stress in the, in just the simple process of choosing something to watch on TV. Well, if it's, if that's stressful choosing someone on TV, choosing a house type, I imagine could be even more stressful. I mean, and then it, it's kind of, it's this idea of overchoice is nothing new. I, I first, came about it by in a book future shock by alvin toffler i mean i think he wrote it back in 1970 and he talks about this this idea of overchoice and the fact that in actual fact citizens do want a simple life in a lot of sense they don't want overchoice and if you do get overchoice it can cause anxiety and stress and discomfort in the process that you're doing so when you're talking about kind of customer choice whether they've got nine layouts ten layouts 15 layouts it's it's trying to understand is is that the is that the optimum is is that the optimum kind of number for the process you're you're applying it to or should it be reduced to then hopefully increase customer engagement and satisfaction yeah totally well yeah i've seen that before decision fatigue isn't it on big decisions i think you know whether that's a job buying a house buying a car i've seen a figure of sort of an average of seven hours banded about like if you (laughs) if we spend more than up to seven hours with your brain on that not continually but it's just you will just sort of your brain just sort of aborts like i'm not not interested in that i'll just pick any you know almost yeah yeah, paradox of choice you know i've worked in in software engineering and web development and, and user interface design in the past and yes there's the there's just proven data there about the paradox of choice you know take some of those choices away and you'll actually get a higher rate of conversion and engagement and whereas if you just present too many people just get stuck and, and it's unpleasant i think that's it yeah. I, I mean some of the some of the bigger projects i'm working on now at wsp it's it's all about permutation strategy and understanding right. well if if you've got a six-sided dice and you've got 10 of them then obviously it's it's six to the power of 10 well the actual mm-hmm. permutations of them choices is a number that humans don't really want to be kind of dealing with whereas if you drop that down to three choices three well if it was a three-sided dice then the kind of the number the permutation is actually reduced dramatically and i think it's, it's understanding the customer the or the, the end the customer's requirements i mean i think if you if you start with a customer and work backwards you're more likely to develop a successful product. And I think sometimes in architecture, that that idea is lost because I think sometimes you get stuck into what your opinion of beauty is and not what potentially the customer's opinion of beauty might be. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And and that applies to, to many things, really. Working backwards, product development, marketing, sales, everything. Starting off with the customer shoes and working backwards rather than, you know, selling or talking about what we want to talk about is definitely a proven way forward. Um, so you mentioned permutations there and customer choice. I mean, what are the some of the challenges around that? What are some of the the downsides to, to, to that, uh, you know, too many permutations? Yeah. So, so I think the the... Obviously, if you increase permutations, you're kind of reducing the standardization. And then if obviously if you're reducing the standardization, there's so many knock-on effects to that. I mean, you you're not getting the benefit of economies of scale because you've got you've got multiple different varieties of wall panels through different sizes. So timber timbers are different sizes. But not only that, if you take this even further into the factory, I mean, you might have an operative building a wall panel and then he might not build the same wall panel for another week. So you end up losing muscle memory and loads of different kind of aspects that could actually improve production rates like repetition. If an operative was just building the same 
component or wall panel like over and over and over and over, mm. then the quality of that wall panel would increase. The, the production rate of that wall panel would increase. And if I suppose if you're in a factory doing so many different things, you might have the same wall panel built in different ways by the same operative because it's kind of been so long before he's got back to that wall panel that he doesn't quite, he just can't quite remember, did he put this stud here or did he put it 50 50 millimeters to the right? And then that's where you end up with the kind of the whole quality issues as well. I think the the production rates are obviously massive in off-site construction. And I think if you start with, if you start with production rates and try and analyze what is your, I suppose, what are the bottlenecks? And re- realistically, the, the lines are only as fast as your slowest station. So whether you've got one station that works really quickly because there is quite a lot of standardization, then it's, it doesn't help that much if you've got another station that there's so much variation that actually there's that kind of bottleneck problem. Yeah, could definitely see that. So that, therefore, your, your operatives aren't able to spot why why one is different. They they almost may as well be when there's been so much variation in building the the same thing so infrequently. You, you may as well be building a bespoke product, a unique product, and exactly. therefore you wouldn't if you were doing that. If you were setting up as a bespoke house builder, you wouldn't have a manufacturing line, for instance. You probably wouldn't set up in that same kind of way, or you'd approach your business completely differently. So, I think that's yeah. it. I think that that kind of goes into this whole idea of kind of um to 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 increase permutations my view is you would have to start looking at the whole kind of like subassembly ecosystem so kind of manufacture of subassemblies in separate factories and then kind of get them all transported to an assembly factory where you've kind of got this just-in-time methodology and the more manufacturers you include in this ecosystem the quicker the the efficiencies get because they're seeing the benefits of economies of scale and they're seeing the benefits of repetition. Whereas if you're trying to do all of that under the one roof, that's where you start. There's almost kind of too much going on. Okay. It's interesting as well. You talk about customer choice and, um, and permutation because because it's uh, the examples that you gave there that's within a seemingly standardized product you know it, it's all all very similar you know it's all the same number of floors it's all the same from the outside it's the same color it's very similar in terms of windows and doors and, and internal layouts are similar i'm surprised to see so many variations that you talk about i mean how, how does that come about i think i mean w- one thing i'm seeing a lot of now at wsp is a, a lot of clients are coming and saying they just they can't get architects to design offsite manufacture to be profitable, and right. and I think that that is the key. Obviously, you do get the benefits of sustainability, but at the end of the day, it's, it it has to be profitable. Well, my view is one of the problems is we're trying to adapt traditional design processes to suit offsite manufacture or MMC, when in actual fact we need to almost go back to the drawing board and say, well, how how should a design team set up to optimize this project for off-site manufacture? And f- for me, the big thing is, well, why aren't people from production or from the factories being involved in the design team? Because it's, it's the idea, it's the same that same thing that you said in product design. A lot of product design is you start with a customer and work backwards. Well, if you're starting with the, the customer working backwards, the factory is going to see that product a lot later down in the design process than the concept architect will. So 
one of the one of the things we're looking at now is kind of collaborating with offsite manufacturers to create kit apart. Now, if you create kit apart to work with the employer or the architect, then you already know that the manufacturers can build them kit apart. So you don't end up with this almost redesign and abortive work because where I see quite a lot of the efficiencies in terms of the production team gets the, or the manufacturing team gets the concept design, they analyze it. There is a lot of optimization to be done. And then there's kind of a back and two of, right, can we, this needs to be changed. This needs to be improved. I think what, one of the great sayings I've heard recently from Dale, who heads up innovation at WSP, is, is this idea of Lego. I mean, how many people take a hacksaw to a piece of Lego? You just don't do it, do you? Like, what, what, I mean, everybody, when they've used Lego, you, have, you use them kit apart. You never complain that, you, that them Lego pieces don't work. You just you make them work. Well, why, why aren't we taking that same methodology into construction? If you have a kit of parts that's defined by a set of rules, then the architect or the designer should have to stick to that kit of parts. You can't, it's like, oh, I just want to move this wall 100, 100 millimeters to the left. Well, no, because then that knocks on, that, that has a knock on effect on this other wall. And then all of a sudden there's like the studs behind the wall needs to change. And it, it's the small design change that has a massive knock on effect that until you actually are at the forefront of the production line and in the manufacturing uh, facility, you don't potentially see that knock-on effect and how that can affect, how that can kind of have quite quite consequential design changes. Yeah, yeah. So, so would you say you almost need that understanding of, of exactly what happens on the factory floor. You, and maybe as an architect, you need to have gone on to a bit of a journey and been very open-minded to to successfully design a product for manufacture. Is that sort of a skill set in its own right, would you say? Yeah, that would be one way. I think the, the other way is kind of, is just is redefining the, the term design team. I think if you're an employer looking for off-site manufacture, then the design team should include and I know there's obviously complications in terms of, well, usually you don't procure or you won't talk to the manufacturers about procuring the sub-assemblies until later on in the process. But why does that need to happen? Why can't the manufacturing uh, team be involved within the design process so you can get that real-time feedback on whether this is going to work? Because once the concept architect has done his job and got it through planning, in a lot of sense, it's already too late to actually start optimizing that design well no employer is going to be very happy if if there's a design for off-site manufacture it goes to the product to the manufacturer or the production line there's optimization design done that then goes back to the architect to see if it if this is all right but in actual fact you need to then go through a planning review because it's kind of changed too much and you've got the i suppose the the what you were saving on program doing off-site it's then lost in in this design review phase. Whereas if you actually, if you use the kit apart or you involve the manufacturers earlier on in the design process, then that whole time period of design review, off-site optimization, that would be reduced dramatically. And then the, the, the employer would then, obviously, it wouldn't cost as much. So the employers would be happy. I can see that, yeah. So do, do you think... 
almost market forces will steer the industry down to using more standardized Lego brick approaches, let's say, not maybe the whole home as a Lego brick, but being made of, of sub-assemblies in that way, because it doesn't sound like it's sustainable, profitable, like the, the businesses that are building unique houses out of unique parts all the time, they'll die out eventually, but as, as, it, as it sounds like from what you're saying. Fees are going down. That's That's just a fact. The employers are kind of demanding more and are willing to pay less. So I think it's it's, just, it's the idea of redefining the role of the architect. I mean, I think if we do go to that Lego analogy, that Lego were actually hemorrhaging a lot of money until they actually decided that every single kind of toy that they made, it had to include 80% of their standardized bricks. So it did allow for that extra 20% of kind of uniqueness or bespoke design. But if we start thinking about construction in that methodology of, well, if you have a standardized kit of parts uh, and that standardized kit of parts is the 80% and then you allow for a a contingency of 20% where it's more bespoke, then you you do start kind of introducing this bespoke or uniqueness into, into the design and you do give the employer that kind of freedom to kind of stamp put their put their identity on it but the background the structure that the m a everything else is just it, it is kind of standardized so you start kind of optimizing the design in terms of program economies of scale and it kind of the whole workflow of from reba stages zero to seven that can be squashed yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Approaching this with a data mindset that leads us sort of onto onto technology. And, and and tell me, what do you think the opportunity for for technology in offsite is at the minute? I think the opportunity for technology is incredible. I see it as almost the last industry to really adopt the potential of software and technology. Although it it is important to to have the ability to draw with pen and paper because that. It, do, it is a quick way to kind of sketch ideas and it's kind of fluid. But in terms of a lot of architecture is based on rules. I mean, building regulations, there are rules that, in my view, can be coded. If a window is within 300 millimeters of a door, it needs to be safety glass. Could that not be coded into the actual design process so that it doesn't need, it doesn't need that extra train of thought to it just automatically specifies that this window needs to be safety glass because it's within 300 millimeters of a door set. But then that gets back to this whole idea of standardization of data. You need you need that program to know that a door set is a door set. Whereas at the minute, so, somebody might call it a door leaf. I'm no expert, but I imagine it would take a very intelligent AI tool to work out that door set, door leaf, door dash set is all the same thing. Now, I think that's where the challenge is in architecture. It's, it is the standardization of data to then be able to use it efficiently to, that, to, to optimize the design process. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and then once you've codified it, you, you're able to almost build tools off the back of that. And I'm, I'm rather crudely th- imagining the uh, IKEA wardrobe builder that I was uh, using at the weekend, but it sort of says like, oops, this can't go here because you can't put the, you can't, you couldn't get your clothes over the rail if that was there, you know, or this doesn't fit there or based on this aperture, you can pick these three things, but not these three things. And you're using exactly. standardized parts and you're using rules to tell you what you can't do. And you're building a nice, a nice interface on top of that. But as you say, you're, you're codifying that, but the underlying data, you know, it's a, a many industries, have been through that journey of uh, industry standards and 
I think that that needs to be done for for offsite as well. I think that the yeah, I mean, Uniclass have done a good job in terms of kind of trying to categorize and give unique identifiers to systems within a building. And but not only systems within a building, it, they they also obviously discuss spaces. So there's like spaces and locations, systems, and then components. Well, the components go into the systems, the systems go into the spaces. Well, if you started kind of creating that relational database between what systems can adjoin what. A good example is in construction, you wouldn't put steel next to aluminium because they're dissimilar metals. If you had that relational database to identify that you shouldn't, you can't put steel next to aluminium, that to me becomes a, just a simple tool to say, well, in the construction process that you need to put some sort of washer or to, to separate them metals. So, so there's things like that where you, when you start getting into databases and relational databases, more recently, recently graph databases, but it starts getting exciting. When I'm designing a building, what are the, realistically, it's what, what are the questions I'm asking myself intuitively to design this correctly? And with the architecture background, you, you, you do, it is just second nature. You don't really sit there and think, what questions am I asking? But realistically, you do ask yourself questions. I think, um, I mean, within, within the digital innovation team, we're, we're talking about how many, how many decisions need to be made to design a staircase? Well, we've kind of got it down to 150 decisions need to be made to design a staircase. If you start breaking them questions down and them decisions to what does the employer actually want to have control over? He, he might not care what's going on behind that wall lining. All he cares about is the wall lining itself. So, so then all of a sudden, 150 questions could get broken down to maybe 80. Well, some clients might just want a really cheap staircase. They're not bothered about the aesthetic side. Well, then you can knock a load of other questions off because you can almost automate them answers for optimization of the staircase. And then it's, then it's broken down to 30. So, so it's this okay. idea of how many questions, because no employer wants, and it gets back to this whole idea of overchoice. No, no employer wants to sit down and be asked 150 questions just to design the stairwell. True. Whereas True. If, you start, if you start breaking it down as almost like a decision engine, that's where it starts getting kind of exciting in the design process in terms of what questions are you asking yourself? And I, th- and I mean, that's how, that's kind of how I got into kind of, well, my first experience with software engineering, it's understanding what, what are you asking, what in your head, what are you asking to solve that problem? And then break that down into separate questions. And then from there, you kind of, you, you answer them questions through code. Mm, okay. And, and maybe, hopefully you can, you can tell us a little bit. Is, is so the, those questions that you're asking in, inside WSP at the moment, those sort of, you know, the planning of the staircase and getting that right down to a number of questions, to what, to what ends is that sort of pursuing, you know, is that for your own internal tools? Is that for something that's for the industry? Is that for just for a single project? So, I mean, we're looking at kind of like a kit of, kit of parts, for example. So th- this whole idea is to create a kit of parts that are based on a set of rules or parameters. Once you've got them kind of hard coded into the kit of parts, it's the 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 one the one thing we're kind of looking at at the minute is it's it's all about a customer engagement. So no, well, no employer wants to sit there on Revit and because you'd have to learn know how to use Revit, but it's that linkage between kind of the customer facing part of that tool, and then how does that link back to Revit or Inventor? 
for then us to produce the the manufacturing drawings or the production drawings. We're kind of working on the analogy that at the minute you produce construction drawings for usually a contractor, and we kind of think in the future that's gonna that's gonna change. Architects are actually gonna produce fabrication drawings, not construction drawings. And if you start trying to standardize them kit apart, that's where you start it, it, you start gaining them efficiencies in the design and then the manufacture. Yes, fascinating. Really interesting to see building design, let's say, and building creation approached in a, in a totally different way than I've seen before. Yeah, fascinating, Russell. Thank you. Thank you for that. Sort of a little peer into the future as well as a sort of, you know, <laughs> how we might think about these things. And, and I'm sure, you know, there's plenty of areas of the industry that haven't even thought about building design in these ways, um, maybe because they're not operating at that scale or, or maybe they've not got to that point yet. But fantastic of you to, to shine a light on that for us today. Is there anything I, I haven't asked you about that you think I should have or, or anything you, you, you uh, wanted to speak about today? The only other thing which which is kind of, it's really in, exciting and interesting topic at the minute is it, it is all about the kind of sub-assembly ecosystems in terms of how, because at, at the minute, the way I see it is a lot of, if you take the car industry, for example, the car industry isn't successful because the car factories are successful. They're successful because of all of the, it's that whole ecosystem, it's the supply chain. And it's it's this idea that they'll have a factory in, well, they could have a factory in Hull that's designing one small component of that car. It's then getting transported to the factory in Germany in this kind of just-in-time methodology for then that to be assembled within that factory. At the minute, what I see is a lot of, I suppose a lot of off-site manufacturers, everything's done under the one roof. Whereas if one company's, say, got a wall-making machine, why? what's to stop them kind of keeping that machine going 24-7, churning walls out like no tomorrow, and then servicing other factories or other, other companies that don't have that wall-making machine? Because it gets, it gets back to this whole idea of your line's only as quick as your slowest station. Because... There's kind of there's not much point having a wall maker machine churning out walls like no tomorrow, if the station after that, it's all manual, and because you're going to struggle to know what to do with them wall panels. So so I mean there's some very interesting conversations at the minute with with kind of a couple of offsite manufacturers to discuss how how potentially they could at the end of the day they could profit from their advancements in technology because they they can kind of almost produce enough wall panels for themselves but not only that actually produce wall panels for multiple other companies multiple other projects and i think that that's that's one of the i think that's that's for me one of the most exciting kind of topics of conversation at the minute and it's and then it i mean that's where you do need software to start managing kind of dynamic scheduling and and kind of understanding where where systems can be made to suit the the program that you're working on the project mm -hmm. and and when you say sort of uh sub assemblies like how far would you go you mentioned walls there but literally could you almost have a, a house builder that is a an assembler of sub assemblies you know they they, they get delivered and they're just putting those lego bricks together you know never making a lego brick never um, designing a lego brick just working exclusively with that is, is that sort of the end goal you see or do you think that's going too far and you might go okay walls bathroom pods but, but nothing more like, what, what would you see is sort of a optimal and, and how far might we go i think the the 
the the the idea being is I think that the the less subassemblies you can actually have coming to a site. I mean, the the other thing to think about is if if you do have this kind of subassembly ecosystem, what's stopping the being almost like a flying factory on the site itself to put these together? So then it starts reducing uh, kind of traveling distances, and then you then you start looking into the embodied carbon of of transport. So if you exactly like you say, if you've got the wall panels being made in one factory in Hull, you've got other, you've got some other wall panels being manufactured in Bordeaux. I mean, there's nothing stopping them being transported to site in this kind of temporary flying factory. I mean, if you look at if you look at F1, they 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 almost transport their whole, I mean, garage <laughs> around the yes. world every other weekend and that works so 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 what's stopping that that kind of same methodology in the construction industry of we know that that factory in in bordeaux can produce the wall panels we, we, we there's a working relationship there you, you've tightened the drawings down you've tightened the specification down so that you know that the quality of that wall panel is always going to be it is always going to be kind of standard so it and then it's then it's just kind of the logistics of the transport, the logistics of the scheduling to understand can can that factory suit the tack times for the program of the project. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, really different way of thinking about it in that way. As you say, flying factory, I had not thought about that way before. I've seen businesses doing sort of panelized construction for their own projects, but actually, you know, when you're sourcing them from around the, the world, potentially, and then, you know, a flying factory setup, it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for that and I'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot. This podcast was brought to you by Trunk, the dynamic scheduling platform for offsite construction. Harnessing AI to help your factory deliver more each day. Check out www.trunk.works to find out more. Thank you.